to uh, denigrate it. You make it the cause of all of America's problems. So white, blue-collar males, the, the, the Trump voter, are, are the basket of deplorables. And in fact, that's just slander. It's not the case. Uh, Marcuse then is a very dangerous radical, and I would call him a Gnostic. He believes he has some special insight that is incommunicable to almost everybody else. And uh, that means it's a cult, not a philosophy. Okay, do you want to go straight into the next one? Sure. Okay. Um, this one's pretty short. It's from Andy N. He says, my question is, how did you think your way through nihilism? Oh, yeah. Uh, hmm. Hmm. You don't think your way through it. You live through it. Um, like Hegel says, the owl of Minerva only flies at night. It's looking back on what you did and the choices that you made that uh, allow you to see and experience value in the world. So I don't think that value is something people create. I think it's something people discover, and I think it's out there. Uh, a good example is, uh, if you're a father... Uh, the experience of seeing your first child. Um, that's value in the world. Um, nobody is indifferent, or at least uh, no one that I would wish to communicate with is indifferent to the welfare of their children. You look at that and you say, yeah, there's something valuable, there's something worth taking care of. Um, same with other choices we make. Um, I think we recognize value we don't uh, invent it. I think that we have no more chance of inventing a new value than we have of inventing a new primary color. Right? All that we have is all we're getting. So it's learning to apply ancient virtues to the contemporary world that give you that sense that you're doing what's right. You can get a sense of, of goodness and rightness, which uh, is not the reason why we behave well but it is one of the pleasant outcomes of behaving well. So uh, we try and be autonomous, but even autonomous people are entitled to feel the happiness that comes with doing the right thing. Yeah, I think that, that was a good one. Um, next one comes from TJ Bonnet. He says, I'm curious if you have any advice for PhD students writing their dissertation or about to start writing. Any insights into this difficult process? Okay, yes, I do. All right. Take out a piece of paper. Write on it. Write the dissertation, stupid. The most dangerous thing you can do as a PhD candidate is called dissertation avoidance behavior. All right. You'll notice once you sit down, start writing, that books on the shelf might well need rearranging. Things may need to be vacuumed or dusted. Or perhaps you talk, need to talk to someone about something that might be happening. Stop dissertation avoidance behavior. That's the most important thing. You have to be conscious of where you are and what you are. You're a year, maybe two, from nailing the PhD. That makes all the difference in the world. Stick with that and do not get sidetracked. Uh, I might be tempted to say, list the, your 25 favorite things and then cross off 23 of them. 
Right. Uh, you can do two and your dissertation. Right. Don't get uh, distracted. Don't get sidetracked. That's the single most important thing when you're writing a diss. Okay, the next one comes from Felipe. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce his last name because I don't want to butcher it. Um, hope this message finds you well, Professor. Recently, I was thinking about evil in general. I know it's a broad subject, but I just want to know more about it. Um, I guess that's the end of his question, but... Oh, boy. <laughs> just well, think about evil. You know, you're not the only one who would like to know more about evil. Um, it is... Uh, controversial what constitutes evil one way of looking at evil is naturalistically and, tra and treating evil as the same thing as pain and that would leave you with pleasure as the good it's one way of looking at it another way of looking at it is a kind of uh, how can I explain this a kind of self-alienation doing what you know you ought not to do let me see if I can explain that. I, I said this in the Heidegger lecture, but it's true and it's worth thinking about. Guilt is the unpleasant certainty that we are not what we could have been. In other words, we know perfectly well, apart from any philosophical argument about causality and universal determinism, we know perfectly well that maybe we make choices and that sometimes we choose one way and sometimes another and that sometimes we do a better job at choosing and sometimes we do a worse job. Well, when we do the worst job, um, the feeling that we have called guilt is knowing that you could have been something better than you are and you chose not to be. That's what guilt is. Okay? So, uh, um... How does guilt connect to evil? Oh, okay. Um, evil is a real thing. It is, uh, it's an alienation from a, a self that's larger than the domain of your skin. It's the idea behind the Good Samaritan. We have obligations to other people, and we become blessed when we recognize them. We have obligations to ourselves too, and that too must be pursued. But the idea that we have obligations to other people is uh, what connects the good in one culture to the good in another. Right. Mm. Do you want to move on to the next? I would say, yeah, unless that sounded too... No, no that was pretty good. Alright. Okay. Um, the name of this person is in Chinese, so obviously I, I can't say it, because okay. like I can't read it. Um, it says... In the West, there seems to be a concept of losing one's soul slash self to addiction. Rehab programs often stress a belief in a higher power, with Christianity being particularly well-suited to this job with its themes of sin, redemption, rebirth, redemption, oh, oh, temptation. Nietzsche says Christianity is suited for slaves. Um, it is also, it is, is it not also suited for the addict in us? What, in Dr. Segrew's opinion, do great thinkers have to say about addiction? Well, that's a, a very tough question. Uh, people of my age and my generation in America um, have seen the results of addictions to narcotics. I've buried friends that went the wrong way 
with regard to drugs. And, uh, you know, I lost a brother to alcohol. So I'm fully aware of the dangers of addiction. There's a great line from the, from the Massachusetts Puritans who settled in New England uh, early in the history of the United States before the United States was actually founded. And they, they used to say that wine comes from God, but the drunkard comes from the devil. So it's not these substances, but rather the use of these substances uh, as a way of putting off psychic pain rather than physical pain. In other words, things like synthetic opioids are properly used for people with great physical pain. But the problem is this easily slips over into addressing people's psychological pain. And if people are numbing themselves, which I think is the great uh, unifier among those that abuse substances, if they want to numb themselves, um, they're not being honest with themselves. Uh, what is it, Blair? He says in Hamlet, to thine own self be true. Well, you have to admit you're in some kind of pain. And then you have to reorganize your feelings, which means reorganizing yourself. And paradoxically, what that's going to involve when they talk about a higher power, what they're going to, what we're, what we're going to be referring to there is obligations you have beyond your obligations to yourself. Right? It's by recognizing those obligations that you actually become free free in the sense of autonomous you have an obligation to yourself to kick this destructive habit and your real freedom lies in legislating for yourself and then and, and then enforcing that legislation strictly conscientiously so you don't slide back and end up addicted again the idea of freedom as liberty easily lends itself to sliding back and uh, uh, further problems in addiction. And the reason why is that if you think that you're free whenever you uh, do what your libido pushes you towards, well, actually, you're only free in the sense that you can ignore other obligations. In fact, you're enslaved to your libido. And if you have a libido that's diseased because it's has this need for heroin or fentanyl or alcohol or whatever, um, you have a monkey on your back and the only guy that can take it off is you. So uh, I like Nietzsche here. Stand up and take responsibility. Also Marcus Aurelius. He said, look, I understand the problems you face are really hard. Here's the secret. Everybody's problems are hard. So there's no special excuse for yours. If they just happen to belong to you, and you got to ask yourself, what is it going to take for me to free myself? How's that? That was a great one. Yeah. Okay. I think, I no, I think you did a good job. I mean, it's kind of personal. I didn't. No, don't know. worry. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah. Next one. This is from Neo oh six eighteen. What are your likes, dislikes, and opinions on the French philosophical and cultural tradition? I have great respect for the French philosophical and cultural tradition. Um, when they're good, it's like that old nursery rhyme, 
when they're good, they're very, very good, and when they're bad, when they're, they're hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think particularly in the uh, Beaux-Arts, in Belles-Lettres, in the uh, fine arts, it's hard to find a culture that compete. I guess in some ways the Italians, but French painting, French literature, uh, French ballet, French music um, are all stellar contributions, along with the French intellectual and scientific tradition. So French mathematicians have made considerable contributions, as have French philosophers. So I would say that in the French tradition, it's not like, say, English literature or German literature, where there's one central figure, a uh, kind of sun that outclasses all the others. The French tradition is more like a constellation of great figures. Uh, I had a friend who studied French intellectual history who once said that he could reconstruct any French thinker uh, by reference entirely to either Descartes or Pascal. And there's some truth in that. Pascal is a genuinely great religious thinker as well as a great scientist and polymath. And Descartes um, was one of the central figures in the creation of modern natural science. He is the one who allowed mathematical formalization, which is an enormous achievement. Think of the tradition of French sculpture, the tradition of French painting. Uh, you know, there's such a wealth of riches in the French. I, I can't help but be impressed. Now, the problem is that I think that uh, the quality went down in European culture in the 20th century. In other words, if you think of that the city is like the man and that these cultures, these nations, these groups of, uh, uh, of individuals can be thought of as a kind of collective individual. Well, here's what I think happened in the 20th century, and it happened to different degrees to different countries, but it happened to all of them in Europe. Um, I think that there, and after World War I in particular, and especially after World War II, that the great nations of, World War, of Europe um, were shell-shocked and had the collective analog of PTSD. In other words, they had been hit and destroyed in a kind of mutual suicide pact. Germany had been bombed flat, and the Russians and the, uh, Allies, and the uh, Western Allies uh, occupied it. France was a scene of great destruction and great death. So were the low countries. So um, Western Europe is uh, in a self-imposed freefall. And uh, as a result of that, their philosophy became especially, um, how can I put it, negative and critical without replacing that which gets criticized. In other words, it became purely a negative exercise without being able to affirm successfully much of anything. So we find out from, say, Sartre or, you know, his, and de Beauvoir that we are alone here in the world and we must make our own decisions and we can't blame any, anyone else. And if we do, we're inauthentic. But they never explain why I should care about being authentic or not authentic um, when there are people who can authentically be awful. I don't see why any of the high-ranking Nazis were inauthentic. I don't see why I should care much less why I should approve. So my point is, there's been a pervasive nihilism 
running through German and French culture in particular. And uh, part of it is seen in the breakup of their, of their respective religious traditions. But also there's a, a breakup of civil society. And this breakup of civil society and this pessimism about the future um, is creating a civilization that can't defend itself. And there's actually a wonderful uh, French author named Michel Houellebecq who writes about this. I mean, he's a nasty individual, but uh, he writes about the decline of the French intellectual class in the contemporary world. And I think that uh, his novels are quite damning. So I have a high regard for the French intellectual tradition. I think in the 20th century, uh, they went badly astray. And I think that the Germans took them with it, went with them. And uh, I think that rather than going astray, the English who spent their time doing analytic philosophy, they didn't go astray, they just didn't go anywhere. Uh, investigating smaller and smaller and more precise uh, logical questions very quickly reaches a point of diminishing returns. So, in the, on the continent, the French and the Germans allowed poets to take over philosophy with predictable gooiness. Instead, we had a bunch of technicians in, the, uh, in uh, England and the other Anglophone countries, and the problem is that they soon became tedious, and no one knew why we were doing this. Who cares? What does it amount to? That's where Wittgenstein comes in and saves us all. I see. So... How are you feeling right now? We have three more. Uh, we could cut it out if you want. Let's do Well, let me hear what it is. Let's see if I want this one. Um, your thoughts about Machiavelli? Oh, okay. Uh, that's from BR. Uh, he just says, okay. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So. Okay. Yeah, this is a funny story. I uh, gave that Machiavelli lecture um, because someone else got ill. And he'd only gotten ill 30 seconds before the lecture went live on video. So uh, Tom Rollins, the head of the teaching company, came backstage and said, look, I need uh, I need Machiavelli in 30 seconds. And we were at the Smithsonian Institution, so we were being taped there, and there was a live audience. So I just went out there with uh, empty sheets of paper, and I, lecture, I free associated about Machiavelli for 45 minutes. So it's an awful lecture, but um, the people couldn't tell that it was awful, which makes me sort of worry. Now, I think that fundamentally, Leo Strauss is right. Machiavelli is a teacher of evil. He's a teacher of more than evil. And um, I don't think that he chooses evil, but rather that he accepts the fact that evil is an inevitable part of uh, political order. There's no political order without violence, and we do well if we minimize violence, which is one of the things that Machiavelli would like to do. But it's utopian to hope that we can get rid of violence entirely. So uh, I'll limit my discussion of Machiavelli on that. Uh, we will take this up at a later time. All right. uh, if, you want to, if you want to see Machiavelli, um, you could see him as uh, Thucydides uh, in the Renaissance. He is a man who looks to history, and in Machiavelli's case, Roman history, Livy and other Roman writers, um, as his example for his theory of human nature and social science. 